As a business owner of an aquaculture company, how can you take the first step to be profitable and sustainable at the same time? That's what we're going to be talking about in these episodes. Hello, and welcome to the Business of Aquaculture podcast. This is the podcast for the sustainable business movement in the aqua farming and ocean ranching industries. This podcast aims to amplify the voices of entrepreneurs addressing the United Nations Global Goals, aka Sustainable Development Goals, number 14, to conserve and sustainably use the oceans and the seas. Listen in to fellow business aquaculturists in their journey in this new model of food production of making their business sustainable and help the ocean's ecology while also making a profit all at the same time. Get inspired to learn how even small to medium businesses can make an impact to save the seas, leave a legacy, and have a better quality of life. One of our goals is you take away a nugget of wisdom that will help your business move from the industrial revolution to business 5.0. Our vision is that of collaboration in the aquaculture industry. I'm Lourdes Gant, your host. As an aquaculture business, how do you solve the challenges in running a sustainable business and being profitable at the same time? We continue our discussions in these episodes for Season 2, so listen in and I hope you enjoy this episode. If you listened to our last episode, I summarized the top trends that were the amalgamation of minds from our special guests from Season 1. Welcome to Episode 2, Season 2 of the Business of Aquaculture. This episode, I'm delighted to have Tim Kennedy, who is the President and CEO of the Canadian Aquaculture Industry Alliance. It is a national association that speaks for Canada's seafood farmers, representing their interests in Ottawa to regulators, policymakers, and political leaders. With a membership that reaches coast to coast to coast, comprised of producers of finfish, shellfish and aquatic plants, feed companies and suppliers, as well as provincial aquaculture associations, it is a passionate advocate for the sustainable growth of Canada's seafood farming. Welcome to the show, team. Thanks for being here. Thank you. I'm really happy to be here with you. Well, let's get this ball rolling. So my first question to you is, and first, really, I'm grateful that you're here because you're a representative and a voice to most of the aquaculturists in Canada. My first question is, what government rules are blocking the development of aquaculture? Yeah, no, thanks for that question. And again, I'm really happy to be here with you, Lourdes. I really admire your initiative with these podcasts. So I wish you all great success. And I hope you have millions of followers. You're maybe not quite there yet, but hopefully soon. So your first question is really focused on government. And I think that that's really important because oftentimes government is this far away reality and both small producers and larger producers, you know, might think about government at different times for permitting purposes, licenses, but they often don't think about the bigger context of how government really provides or doesn't provide really an appropriate framework to advance businesses in the aquaculture sector. And I wanted to focus on that just for a second, because I would say for Kaya, for our organization, what we're seeing is that we don't get equitable treatment. We are farmers, and we have been pushing forward as sort of a young farming sector for many, many years, right? So kind of commercial production is maybe a lot of people say it's around 40 years old in Canada, but we don't have 
nearly the extent of access to farming programs, for instance, at the federal level that other farmers do. And I'll give you one really key example. And that is in the last few years, we've seen really difficult times for shellfish farmers, both from sort of environmental climate, COVID-related stresses. And a lot of the companies are smaller and they do not have the same kind of access to business risk management joint insurance programs that other farmers might have and might have access to. So that's just one example, but there are so many within our sector where we really do fall through the gaps. And I would say, especially with the federal government and its management in British Columbia of the aquaculture sector under DFO, this is something that has to be addressed. It's the number one priority that has to be clarified, which is we have a regulator at the federal level, Department of Fisheries and Oceans. Critics and environmentalists will often say they have a mixed mandate. They're supporting the development of aquaculture and they're also regulating at the same time. I'm going to challenge that because. Oftentimes, when I started this job, I would go to DFO and I'd say, do you have any proposals or programs to support fish health? And they wouldn't have any of these programs. So again, the programs that farmers might have, we do not have access to. What we need very clearly, I think, in this country is, number one, is the definition, the identification of a federal department that explicitly supports the economic growth of the sector. That's number one. Number two is we need a structure that's put in place that really is distinct from the regulatory side. So yes, we do need clarity around that. You have to have a separation between the regulatory and the sort of economic support for the sector. And that's not clear right now. And then the next thing we need is we do need a national strategy for sustainable growth for the sector. We need a framework and a roadmap to really push ahead with aquaculture development, we have such an incredible opportunity in this country. Biophysical, we have amazing people, we have technological opportunity that's really unsurpassed in the world, but we don't have the plan and the framework to make it happen. And I think this is a real failure on the part of, I will say that very explicitly, of the federal government. And it's our job, it's Kaya's job to make sure that that is moving forward and that we can advance that. And we're starting to see some really great little green shoots, I would say, of opportunity to kind of move that forward. But we're not there yet. And of course, we're in the midst of an election. And that always is, in a sense, a new start. So you have to start and almost again. But there's some good opportunity there. And, and I think that that kind of work and that framework development is critical to push us all forward. Well, thank you for saying that, Tim. It's a breath of fresh air to hear this. Um, as you know, my husband started our aquaculture business 30 years ago, and I totally agree with you in terms of the access to programs. It was interesting and fascinating. I only joined 13 years ago, as so I always share with my audience, and I totally feel all these challenges that you mentioned, specifically access to programs, and it's not really mostly as well in terms of just regulation, just even the species that we culture in, there's a different treatment even in our own association in terms of how oyster is treated from our shellfish king clam. And so it's fascinating to hear that. I also commend you for the bravery of having this out there to be the voice of the farmers, specifically in aquaculture, because we definitely need this kind of, I call it sustainable leadership in my pillars of sustainability, which is leadership, partnership, and 
stewardship. And so I really commend you for being our leader to be our voice there. Which leads me to my second question. How can companies help to change this? So there are a number of things. I will make a shameless plug and say, please join Kaya. So we really do, right? So we're the national voice. We, we only have about 60 members. So we have salmon, shellfish, we have Cascadia seaweed, which we're really proud about, you know, all coasts, basically 10 provinces and one territory of membership, but we still have a pretty small membership. And everyone needs to recognize that if you're part of this sector, we need your involvement because if we don't have that large number and that strong voice behind us, there's only so much we can do in Ottawa. So that's my shameless plug. So I really would welcome people to join us in our fight, as you said, Lourdes, in, in our fight to kind of move to the next level of support for the sector. So that's number one. Number two is please recognize, and I think a lot of people, especially in British Columbia, with the really, really negative decision by Minister Jordan in December towards the Discovery Islands salmon farm sector, I would say that government has an impact. It really, really can significantly impact your business. And we all have to, again, collaborate together and work together to address the constraints. And, and so that's the best way to do that is, is through the associations, both provincial and federal. So the other thing I would say is we're not good as a sector at communicating. Oftentimes we think we got to leave it to the professionals. We have to leave it to the associations. But I really will emphasize that unless you are taking your own leadership and you're sort of embracing the need to communicate with your local publics and perhaps even regional publics directly, that we're not going to get ahead. I think we all recognize how important communications is. And so I would just say there are ways you can do that. You can engage your small employee base or your larger employee base to be engaged. You can do short videos. They're not difficult to do. Get them out on social media making interesting statements or being creative about how to communicate about the importance of the seafood farming sector. So that's something we have to do better. And I, my background before coming to Kaya was both in mainly in the energy sector, but also working as a consultant with different resource sectors. And I will say that we are behind in terms of our capacity to communicate. We're behind other sectors. So we we need to do that better. We need to do it creatively. And I think we all have to look at how do we take up our public communications a notch to both educate, but also build that public trust, right? That That's so critical because we're all suffering from that deficit, I think. And so we all need to kind of take up that torch and do what we can. I would say those are some of the things, you know, immediate things that companies could do to really get engaged. Thank you for mentioning all those. I'm actually kind of surprised myself because for a really new industry, I think in a way it's new, but it's not new. But two of my podcast guests from season one mentioned Brian Takeda from Archonomics mentioned about it's our responsibility to educate the public. And I think most of the people in the industry are so busy just doing the day-to-day that this has really gotten into the back burner of really sharing to people what we do as seafood farmers. You know, the everyday activities just really is already overwhelming that this need some kind of leadership to be able to bring it to the table that this is also important of where do we see the industry as a group, as a partnership for everybody to take 
action so that people really understand what we do because there's a lot of miscommunication and a lot of misinterpretation of what we actually do. Even I mentioned our industry in terms of the species Guilak, that we actually culture is very different how they do it in the United States compared to how we do it here in Canada. And even that is not very much available online. So mm-hmm. I'm actually really grateful that I've been given an opportunity to be a certain voice in my small ways. I'm actually really grateful for the people who listen to the podcast and continue. So yes, please do join Canadian Aquaculture Industry Alliance if you're in the industry. And I am very new in the industry and in this alliance membership, but I would never probably have found it if I was not connected to some people who are already members. So in Mm -hmm, some ways, mm -hmm. I am definitely doing a shameless self-promotion as well because I know we can do a lot more with one big voice with more members. So thank you again. Thank you. No, that's, that's great. No, and really, and this podcast is exactly the sort of thing that I'm talking about, right? You stepping out and doing this and trying to reach a new audiences. So it's, it's fantastic. Thank you. And I'm really grateful that people said yes to be my guest because this will not be possible without people sharing their time graciously. So thanks again. Yeah. And my second to the last question what will the sector look like in 10 years? Yeah, it's a great question. And of course, there are different realities across the country that I see. Of course, I'm not focused just on British Columbia, but you know, we, we are seeing some expansion in Atlantic Canada, both salmon farming and I think oyster production. So that's exciting. And we're seeing some other species coming up as well. I mean, small land-based experiments with salmon and trout and Arctic char. And then, of course, on the West Coast, where we've seen some real impacts from government decisions in the in the last you know eighteen months, I'm still very excited and I'm very positive about the opportunity. I will say that there really is no better biological place in the world to grow salmon in particular, but oysters and again, and now we have sable fish that's I think a real amazing. It's, it's, it's a really distinctive story for British Columbia that I think we'll see some expansion. And a number of other species, you're certainly working on some other species. So there are these great opportunities, seaweeds. I just think that that sort of collaboration that we're seeing, that coming together of different companies, I think is really exciting. So when you see, for instance, and I'll use the example, I hope I don't get in trouble for it, but Cermac, you know, working with Cascadia and then also talking to shellfish companies and that sort of multi-trophic type approach, that's really exciting. And when I see Indigenous leaders, and this is something I haven't talked about, but that sort of partnership really, you know, the Indigenous leadership is the future of aquaculture in British Columbia and in other parts of the country as well. So I'm really excited. I mean, we are certainly in a very challenging time right now, but I think going forward, there is an opportunity to really look at new ways of developing, you know, developing the sector and really seeing it sustainably grow but benefiting small communities. I mean, again, one of the great stories I love hearing is from First Nations who who have been involved in aquaculture and are doing well with, with partnerships with some of Kaya's members or our members themselves and are seeing families and young people returning to their communities, right? And, and they haven't seen that for 50 years. So those sorts of stories have to be told much more. But I actually think we will see a diversified sector in 10 years. I think we will see both from a species, but also from a 
labor perspective. So I think we'll continue to see young people coming into the sector because they, I'm telling you, I'll give my example of my daughter. She actually did a, an aquaculture technician course at Excel College. And unfortunately, because it's COVID, it was very difficult for her to continue. But I will say, I know lots and lots of young people from all across Canada and globally would love to work in this sector, right? Would love to work in it. And I think we're seeing that continuing to happen. So I really see a dynamic sector, lots of opportunity and diversity. So I'm still very enthusiastic about it, despite a lot of pain, I will say, that continues from a very difficult and poor decision made by Minister Jordan in December of last year. Well, it's fascinating you mentioned about young people because I am already also active in the sustainability sphere. And one of the trends that we're seeing in the sustainability industry nowadays is how active young people are in terms of voicing their concern about what's happening, you know, in our climate, in our environment. And our industry is one platform wherein people can return to their ocean-based heritage and With what's going on with the food production all over the world and globally, there will be definitely a tipping point wherein, you know, we're in the cusp of there will be not much left if we really don't take action now in a collaborative manner. And so that's why, hence the word sustainable partnership in my pillar, because we can't do it alone. And I like what you mentioned in terms of how these collaborations are going to continue in our industry and it's for our own good as well. So which brings me back to my last question. What's one thing you think will still be here that will not change 10 years from now? I think it's the reality that marine farming, water marine farming, but ocean-based farming is really the future for Canada. So I don't think that will change because even though land-based is is of particular interest right now from a kind of activist and policy perspective, it certainly has a place. But I think if Canada wants to have a secure supply of healthy, fresh seafood for its own people, which we've seen through COVID, by the way, I think that the ocean is really the way to go. And I think it's the natural way that people will really continue to embrace. And I will say, amazing during COVID, that some major grocers across Canada and the United States saw a 300% increase in demand for salmon and trout, so fresh Canadian salmon and trout. During that period, when people were experimenting and bringing fresh fish into their houses for the first time, probably in many ways, But the demand skyrocketed, and I think that that will continue. That's my guess, because it's a fresh and obviously very healthy protein. But that will also be a foundation for future growth of ocean-based farming in Canada. And again, there are lots of different technological opportunities and variety that I think we'll see, but I definitely continue to think that in 10 years, marine-based farming will be the preferred option for aquaculture. Wow, that's amazing that you mentioned that one of the top trends from season one is actually seasteading. And this is very much in alignment with what you mentioned that staying here is marine-based farming. Thank you so much, Tim, for your time. My biggest takeaway from this episode is when you mentioned about program access. I look forward that the Canadian Aquaculture Industry Alliance helps 
make this a big introduction in terms on how the seafood farmers can have more access to programs because it's definitely needed, especially after the pandemic. Thank you again. And Pleasure. To all of my listeners and followers, remember you help build a home in the Philippines every time you listen to the podcast via the B1G1.com initiative. Share the podcast to your friends and family who you think may benefit. I'll see you in the next episode. Thanks again, Tim. Thank you. Thank you for listening and I hope you are inspired from this episode. Do take a moment and share this with your friends and colleagues and rate and review the podcast wherever you get your podcasts. I'd love to know what your biggest takeaway from this conversation has been. What are you going to do differently? Please share your thoughts across social media and tag us. For links and show notes for this episode, visit our website www.sustainableaquaculture.ca/podcast. Thank you again. I hope you will join me on the next episode and together we can help create a better business in aquaculture.